Welcome to Non-Obvious with Hugh Hansen. Uh, okay, so we're starting our second edition uh, podcast uh, with Stan McCoy, who's with the MPA. Uh, why don't you actually... Uh, so it's Motion Picture Association of America, right? It is, yeah. Um, but it has like... MPAA is like the U.S. version, and your MPA with the um, EMEA, which is Europe, Middle East, Asia, Middle East, and Africa. Yep, Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, to what extent are you controlled? Is there somebody over everybody? Yep. The uh, the MPAA, the Motion Picture Association of America, is the parent, and it has two international subsidiaries, one for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. I run that subsidiary. Uh, there's another one for Asia Pacific. Mike Ellis runs that one. And the overall organization is run by Charlie Rivkin, who's the former U.S. ambassador to France and uh, assistant secretary of state. And who's, who's the head of MPAA? Charlie. Charlie, yeah, he's the uh, he's the big boss. And you used to have a, a, a big po political from the Johnson administration, right? As the head. Yeah, it was uh, it, it was for a long time Jack Valenti. Yeah, yeah. Um, interesting. Uh, when we, uh, uh, he was a little full of himself, wasn't he? Well, he was a great man. I mean, he had uh, he was sort of present at the creation of a lot of the uh, uh, Johnson administration initiatives and uh, uh, and uh, left after a while to take over the MPAA at a time when they needed a lot of guidance in Washington. Yeah, well, this, and he always went around in a Rolls Royce or something, other thing. Do you know any of this stuff? He, uh, uh, I don't know so much about that stuff. I've read his, uh, I've, I've read his book, and uh, I know that uh, he was a big presence at all the European film festivals, Cannes, Venice. Yeah, that, those well, were the days. Well, he was an example of what I thought is, how do you lobby Europe and... First, at a time when no one was lobbying the commission. Um, and, uh, but the U.S. people were, were used to lobbying and doing stuff like that. So I happened to be there. I was there a lot over the years. And at the commission, uh, this was copyright, and uh, which was DG3 uh, then. Uh, and uh, he had sent in a thing I want to speak about I forget what it was uh, offhand that was pending. And he refused to go to the unit, the head of unit. He wanted to speak um, uh, to, to the head of uh, DG3, um, the commissioner, and which missed the whole point. He would have been tremendously enwrapped you know, if he went down to this lower level person who was running it and spoke to him and everything, that would have been much more influence. And that person would say, wow, I'm going this and this and this. But he, you're not important enough. I'm going to this guy who knew nothing. So all that happened is this guy went and talked to this guy and said, you should say this. And that's what he said to this. And there was no interaction. So there was my point of is if you're going to lobby in the U.S., you never would have done that. He would sort of figure out who, who was actually doing it and everything else, I think. Um, but I thought it was just a, a real misstep. And I thought someone who had been in politics for so many years would have realized it. But that's why I think he was full of himself. It's just this guy wasn't on my level. Mm -hmm. I'm way up here and, and he's way down there. Anyway, I know he did a lot of good things and, and he was very important to Lyndon Johnson those years he was in the White House. All right, enough of that. Um, Okay, so a little bit, let's start out with your life. Where were you born? I was born in Manassas, Virginia, D.C. suburbs. Oh, my heavens, Civil War. Yeah. Um, wasn't that the first battle? The, the first and second, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you grew up around right there? No, uh, when I was 10 weeks old, uh, my family moved to Thailand. My father was in the Air Force, and mm. uh, we moved uh, about every two or three years while I was growing up. So you were an Air Force brat. I was, yeah. Uh, now that, is that, you know, the people I know, Army brats and other that, 
and that's a term of endearment, by the way. It's that, not, not a bad term. Um, actually, they thought, oh, I had to learn again, and I had to meet people, and I became more self-sufficient. And it, Or was that the way it worked? Or were you saying, my God, why are we moving so often? Yeah, no, at the time, I think it was more, my God, why are we moving so often? Yeah. I and mean, the older I got, the more I resisted every move along the way because, you know, you're getting uprooted from things you've become accustomed to, friends and, uh, and schools and so on. Uh, but in retrospect, of course, it's easy to see that you learn a lot and get exposed to a lot of good things that, you know, and, uh, the, the average American kid who doesn't uh, leave their hometown or home state doesn't get to experience. But I, and I guess one of the downsides, you don't have any long-term friends from any of these things, like if you had gone to high school, junior high school together someplace. Yeah, it's not like I grew up in one town and mm. uh, grew up with the same, the same kids for a uh, generation. Okay, so now when did that stop? What age did that stop? Well, at, uh, at 18, I uh, uh, graduated from high school in uh, West Potomac, uh, West Potomac High School in Alexandria, Virginia, in the south suburbs of D.C., uh, and uh, headed off to DePaul University. And four years at DePaul University was the longest I had ever lived in one place. And how was that? Uh, it was very good. I mean, it was uh, the it's, that's Chicago, uh, isn't it? The, no, the, not not the one with the L, but the one with the W. Oh, so, no. sort of West Central Indiana. Okay. In a town of eight thousand people at that time. And they were all attending the, the park, probably. It, the, <laughs> the university was a big part of the town. And how was that experience? Yeah, it was a nice place to go to school. Very, uh, very, very insular. Very far from the world, but. Uh, I got out for a semester, uh, did a semester abroad in Germany. Uh, Where in Germany? We have a German person right here observing. I was I was talking with her earlier. Uh, in, uh, in German? The uh, in well, partially in German, but uh, most of the classes were in English. I wasn't speaking in German. My German has become sort of passive now, so it's not really what it used to be. Yeah, I was in Freiburg in uh, in the Black Forest. Uh, okay. Sort of south. Uh, and what were you studying? Uh, I was studying political science. In Germany for that semester abroad. Yeah, most okay. mostly political science and German language. Okay, so then at what point did you decide you wanted to be? Well, actually, from there you went into journalism, right? Yeah, I went uh, out of. Uh, I had been the editor of the college newspaper uh, at DePaul and uh, was into journalism, and then. Uh, uh, got an internship coming right out of school with something called the Dow Jones Newspaper Fund uh, at uh, Newsday in, on Long Island. And then from there, I went to uh, an internship at the Milwaukee Journal. And I stuck around at the Milwaukee Journal for uh, about a year and a half. And how was that? It was very good. I mean, it was a great experience, uh, sort of as a, uh, a beat reporter covering the police beat. Uh, three days a week, and then the other two days a week, I would be a stringer going out, and uh, I would literally show up at the city editor's desk and ask him what he had for me and go cover whatever he needed covered that day. All right, so what then caused you to go to law school? Well, one uh, one month, I had uh, a story on the front page uh, that everybody really liked. And I thought, well, this is my moment to go into the city editor and ask for a permanent job. I said, I'm on this three day a week, part time thing, stringer two days, I'd really like to have a full time job. So I went into the city editor. And uh, I said, uh, Don, I, I had this, uh, this award winning story front page would, uh, would really like to have a full time job. Can you help me out? And uh, Don Walker, the city editor was kind of grizzled old city city editor out of central casting looked at me across the table and said kid i love your work you could be edward r fucking murrow i couldn't give you a job <laughs> the so i so uh and let me just observe you observe that maybe language is something we should be watching oh okay. okay well you can you can you can you can <laughs> you can believe that if you want no we won't okay if if, if they'll if they'll exclude you from youtube for that so how did that leave the law school uh, the, 
well, it made me think that maybe uh, maybe journalism was going to be a career with uh, with somewhat limited options, and uh, I should think about uh, other options. So I went back and uh, I went went back and polished my law school applications. Uh, got into the University of Virginia and decided to go there. And how was that? It was great. I mean, uh, highly recommend it. Wonderful place to go to law school. Where? Uh, Charlottesville. Mm. Yeah. And do you have? Uh... While in law school, did you know what you wanted to do when you graduated, or were you just like many law students, you were just doing it, and then uh, yeah, I had no idea. It was like, I had, had no no particular specialization. I mean, I took an international law class, I took a European Community class, so I took some classes that were relevant, but I didn't really, um, you know, I, I didn't really have much. Uh, direction and the things I thought I might be interested in doing. But then you got a, an excellent job, Covington and Burling, right? I did. That was a great firm to work for coming out of law school. And what you were, I, I think, an associate, were you associate in litigation, associate in this? Would we... Well, one of the things I liked about Covington was they had a, a more or less free market approach. They would slot you into a couple of things coming in, but then they wouldn't be too uh, restrictive about what assignments you could take after you got there. So uh, I uh, started off doing uh, communications, uh, so communications regulatory work, which was mostly uh, broadcasting, representing uh, uh, local broadcast stations around the country. And the other half of it was insurance litigation. Uh, and the uh, and then I was I happened to be uh, across the hall from a partner who was working on some international trade projects and uh, got interested in working with him a little bit. Uh, and over the course of my first year there started uh, doing that kind of work as well. That led them to uh, assign me to Brussels for a few months, uh, which led them to send me to Brussels for two years, and I was off to the races on and, international IP. And you met your future wife? Uh, I had actually met her in law school. Oh. Yeah, she was a visiting scholar at the University of Virginia while I was there. And uh, it's a coincidence because uh, Bob Lighthouse who is now the USTR also, went to Covington out of law school. I don't know. Um, so you loved Brussels from what I understand, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, still do. I live there now. It's a wonderful city to live in. Are you you're working in there? Are you also living in the city or a suburb? Yeah, I live in the city. Mm -hmm. It's wow. very, a very livable city. I mean, it's not. it's certainly not New York or even Washington in terms of the scale of things and it doesn't have the uh the kind of culture you'd find in uh paris or berlin but uh but for a city of its size it's incredibly livable we live we're right in the city i can take my kids to work on the bicycle and uh get to the office all in less than an hour now my experience with brussels of course i didn't live there but it's almost a separate community the communitaire eu people are almost a city within a city. Yeah, uh, you found that. Yeah. Well, that make that can make it actually fantastic. Or uh, I also sense that the uh, Brusselians, Brusselterians, or whatever uh, people born and raised there, sort of resented that a little bit. Yeah, we uh, have the good fortune to be a little more connected to the community because our kids go to the local schools. So, mm. uh, so that uh, gives us a little more of a um, uh, a little more of a plug into the local neighborhood. Uh, which living in the city in Brussels is uh, very diverse and very interesting. A lot of people's jobs depend in one way or another on the EU and the European institutions that are there. So, uh, so I. I I don't think you could oversimplify, but I think the true Belgians who whose life would be in Belgium, regardless of the EU institutions, are sort of living their own life apart mm. from it. Right. Uh, if I'm in the U.S. and I'm, uh, how old were you when you went to Brussels? When I went to when I went to Brussels for the first time, I was uh, I was out of law school, so late twenties. Yeah. Okay. So. Would you advise someone uh, in the U.S., U.S. law student or a graduate, that spend some time in Brussels, look for 
And how hard would it be to do that? I'm not sure I would, uh, just because it's tough for an American. When I uh, sort of stumbled into the opportunity to go to the Brussels office of, uh, of Covington, it was to service some American clients who needed work done on trade and international IP. Uh, but there's not a great deal of work for Americans in Brussels, mm. uh, particularly if you're dealing with government affairs type of issues. Unsurprisingly, even American firms that want to hire someone to do that sort of thing often want to hire a European. Yeah, um, okay. Uh, so you're now in Brussels. You went back to Covington. Yeah, I went back. I went back briefly from my first first stint in Brussels to Covington and Washington, uh, but in the intervening time, I had decided that international trade was something I was really interested in and wanted to do more of. And uh, since it's mostly a government to government exercise, I decided to try to find a job in the U.S. government. All right. So. International trade, but not IP at that point, or was it IP and international trade? I wasn't necessarily focused on IP at that point. More trade than uh, more trade than IP, but I had had some exposure to IP uh, while I was working in Brussels. All right. So, how did you end up in uh, USTR? Uh, the uh, uh, the connection at the time uh, was through some uh, Covington uh, alumni who had uh, spent time at USTR and uh, gave me some introductions and, uh, and uh, uh, made it through the job interviews and landed a job as an assistant general counsel, uh, so as a staff attorney in uh, USTR. All right, so then you went to Deputy Assistant U.S. Trade Representative and Chief Negotiator, if memory serves me, and Chief Negotiator for Intellectual Property uh, Enforcement. And what was that all about? Well, that was, uh, that was at the time when uh, we had previously had uh, intellectual property and services lumped together under one office that was run by an assistant USTR named Joe Papovich. Great guy. You probably, mm. you, you, you probably had him at the, uh, at, at the conference back in the day. Uh, and, uh, uh, and after Joe left USTR, they decided to break the office into two. Uh, and they, uh, they took the, uh, the deputy who had been working on uh, uh, who had been working on IP issues, Victoria Espinel, and they made her the first assistant USTR for intellectual property and innovation. Uh, and uh, I had been Victoria's lawyer in the general counsel's office, and she brought me up to be her deputy in the newly created IP office. And yeah, I imagine you still see each other. Uh... Correspond quite often. Yeah, she's a good friend. Yeah. Um, and then you're an assistant U.S. trade representative for intellectual property, I see, and innovation. Mm -hmm. Was innovation always in that name? I don't remember when they added that. Uh, might have been. Uh, might have been something they did after the first couple of years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and how was? And that's where I met you, right? When you were yep. doing it. Yeah, I think uh, I think when I was the deputy was the uh, was the the first time I came to the conference. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the what is the chain of command in IP in USTR? Uh, how many people, for instance, are dealing with IP in USTR? Yeah. Well, it's because IP is a is a very legal subject. You have uh, you have some lawyers in the general counsel's office who are focused on it, and then you have a team of negotiators in the IP policy office who are working on it, uh, and then you have all these regional offices at USTR that have responsibility for different parts of the world, and they won't be the subject matter experts in IP, uh, but they will be the experts in this or that region. So in principle, on any issue that you have, say if the issue is IP in China, then you'll have the China office, the IP office, and the general counsel's office all involved in that issue. And, and how many people, if any, do IP only IP? 
do only IP in the USTR. Well, the that that would be principally the people who work in the functional office uh, for IP. So that'll be uh, I think they're at about a strength of about seven people working in that office now, and uh, and then there will normally be um, give or take. Two lawyers assigned to uh, to work more or less full time on IP. All right. So, w where did you fit into these descriptions? You said that lawyers as policy. There's this. Where were your jobs fitting into that scheme? So I started as the lawyer yeah. dealing with IP, uh, or as one of the lawyers dealing with IP, and then when I became the deputy assistant USTR. Uh, I moved to the policy office, uh, and then after Victoria left, I took over her job running the policy office. So then you were 100% IP or not? 100% IP, yeah. Okay. Um, and USTR, I didn't have a clue about IP, correct? Uh a long, long time ago, they didn't have a clue about IP. Hopefully, when I worked there, they had a little bit of a clue about IP. No, but that means you were the boss, really. Yeah. They so you, they would say broad things what we want, but you would be the one, <coughs> as we say in the business, you were the man, uh, with regard to IP there. Then yeah, we had to. I mean, like like with any agency, you've got a lot of complicated subject matter, and we were paid to be the subject matter experts on IP, reporting to political bosses who are calling the shots about. IP and subsidies and dozens of other subjects. You know, the interesting uh, parallel to some extent was the commission. Again, this was a DG 34, I guess it was. Um, and for Stringer, Francois for Stringer was head of the copyright unit, which is of all the positions you can have of some power, the least important because there were a couple people over you and then there was the... Uh, Cabinet, and then there was the commissioner, but he was the one who knew it, and no one else knew it. So for, I don't know, four or five years, of which it was the most productive in terms of directives and other things, he was really running EU uh, copyright, uh, which was it never would happen in the U.S. government that someone at that stage would have all that power. But knowledge is power. You can use that, by the way, if you want. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the, the other thing that distinguishes the European system is they don't have uh, as many political appointees there. I mean, the 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 head of the uh, the commissioner for a given subject will be a political person, uh, often a politician from their home country who's been designated as that country's commissioner and assigned to the relevant subject, whatever it is. Uh, but then the the head of the directorate general will be a career commission uh, official. Well, my experience was that the, com the commission's uh, civil service you know, was excellent, hmm. uh, really good people, and they have to take all these tests to get in and everything, and, and uh, I was actually very impressed with them, and uh, well, I think they did generally did a good job. Yeah, I, was, I always had the same impression being across the table from them in various negotiations. There was, you got a very high quality of, uh, of public official there. All right, so you go after USTR is a cabinet official, correct? Yes. What does that mean? Does that mean he, he de facto uh, reports to somebody in the White House, a staffer in the White House, chief of staff, something. He doesn't, how much actually does he, I imagine very little, see the president? Yeah, it, it works differently in different administrations. In principle, all of those cabinet secretaries uh, are reporting to the president. In practice, they're reporting to the people immediately around the, the, the president who are controlling the levers of policy. And how much direct interaction they have with the president varies from one administration to another. All right. So you've determined this is what we should do in IP. You say that to the USTR who agrees. Does someone then have to convince staffers in the White House, or are you pretty much free to go until someone stops you? That's usually the call of the USTR. They'll, it's down to their 
relationship with the with the White House and their sense of their own authority, whether they think they've already been authorized to to do whatever it is that they want to do, or whether this is something new that they need to go and get cleared with the White House. <laughs> so if you're talking about uh, an approach to negotiating the IP chapter of the uh, of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was an agreement I worked on in the Obama administration, uh, then the USTR would feel fully empowered to decide on the appropriate approach to uh, to resolving that in continuing consultation with the White House, but he's already got the mandate to move forward on that. Uh, whereas if you're talking about starting a new agreement, then uh, then he or she might feel that they had a lot of consultation to do with the White House before they could move forward. Do you think uh, Obama should have given more support to TPP than he did? He had a very uh, he had a very difficult um, uh, political equation to balance in the first term. I think if you could fault him, he should have. Uh, he should have found a way to take up the cudgels on trade a little bit, uh, a little bit in the first term to lay more groundwork for TPP, so that things weren't so compressed in the second term, uh, because it became a timing game in the second term, and they ran out of time to get it done. Uh, that's uh, it, it was as simple as that. I thought they ran out of will to get it done. <laughs> Well, it's a it, 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 it's a complicated story. There, I think the political will was there in the administration to get it done, uh, but to, there was a very strong desire to do it right, and doing it right meant uh, getting good outcomes on a wide range of issues. Uh, and you had the complication that some of the trading partners on the other side of the uh, on the other side of the table had one eye on the clock as well. Uh, and they thought their leverage was increasing as time was running out for the Obama administration. So everybody was playing a game a bit in terms of how much leverage they thought they had at any given moment and how this deal would come together. And the uh, the tragedy of the whole thing is that in the end, a good deal did come together, but it came together at such a late stage uh, that it was... Uh, probably politically doomed no matter what the outcome of the election, uh, although you can speculate about whether uh, whether Hillary, Hillary Clinton would have changed her tune on TPP uh, if she had been elected. Uh, she certainly was not in support of it uh, during the campaign. Which is strange. I mean, she really uh, historically was in favor of IP, probably in favor of TPP or its predecessors. And I think she just ran scared, and uh, it, it just uh, there was too much of the base that was going to be thinking it was going to hurt the Iowa and all these other places if we have this. Yeah, and and long before he was the nominee, Trump, you could you could say that Trump was driving the trade politics of that campaign. Uh, he was making trade a dirty word in that campaign, and all of the candidates were shaping their positions around that. All right, so that we're going to actually, there's a whole bunch of stuff to still to do. Uh, I, uh, <clears throat> but I have to say, are you now disappointed that you voted for Trump? <laughs> the, uh, uh, I've, uh, uh, let's not get into how I voted. <laughs> no, I know how you voted. I don't know, but I, I can guess how you voted. Um, so I was very, I, I was, <coughs> I was very proud in my career to serve in both Democratic and Republican administrations. Uh, and I respected the political officials of both of those administrations very much. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to think. How much time do we have? Because 30 I minutes. Think, what? 30 minutes. For an hour. For an hour, yeah. Well, we're doing the three-hour one, aren't we? Yeah, sure. But we can <laughs> edit out the boring stuff. That's okay. <laughs> just hold on. I'm just trying to see. Um... Actually, the stuff you were just doing, <coughs> I think it's very important. Nobody gets that, knows this stuff. 
So it's very good that you went through it, I think. Uh, um, Okay, uh, SOPA, ACTA, uh, what's, what, what really went on there? Uh, SOPA, ACTA, you want the, you want the, the condensed history yeah, of yeah. Uh, SOPA, PIPA, ACTA? Yeah. Well, uh, I, think the, uh, I think the history probably starts... First of all, why don't you tell us what actually those letters stand for? Uh, SOPA, I think, was the Stop Online Piracy Act, uh, and PIPA was the Protect Intellectual Property Act, uh, and those were the names of uh, uh, parallel pieces of legislation that was, that was the US. In the, on the U.S. side in the, uh, in the House and Senate uh, that, were, uh, that were meant to strengthen the U.S. approach to online piracy. Uh, ACTA, the Anti-Counterfeiting Trade Agreement, is an agreement I worked on that was, uh, that was meant to be a TRIPS plus sectoral agreement focused on IP enforcement between the US, the EU, Japan, and a smattering of other countries that had relatively strong IP regimes. And? So the uh, so I, I think the condensed history of uh, SOPA PIPA probably starts with some legislation that uh, happened uh, before that, uh, creating the office of the IP coordinator in the Bush administration, uh, and then uh, who was the IP coordinator? Well, in the Bush administration, uh, it was Chris Israel, uh, and then in the Obama administration, it was. Um, uh, it was Victoria Espinel, my mm. good friend, and uh, the uh, uh, and then later in the Obama administration, it was Danny Marti, and uh, I, I think the the creation of that position and the uh, gave a sense of momentum to the IP industry lobbyists who felt like, okay, good, we have good good responsiveness, good support in the uh, in the administration, but we have this terrible problem of uh, internet piracy. We need to strengthen the legislative tools to to deal with internet piracy, and so uh, this idea of uh, some targeted legislation to uh, strengthen the uh, the statutory machinery for dealing with uh, pirate websites that were targeting the U.S. market, but based outside of the United States, uh, was born in the uh, in the form of uh, SOPA and PIPA. Uh, and uh, what what happened to make a very long story very short was that uh, that. Uh, Around that time, and in parallel with the negotiation of ACTA, which was meant to sort of raise the bar on uh, international IP enforcement standards beyond the minimum standards of the TRIPS agreement, you had the awakening of uh, some of the tech sector interests in the United States who felt uh, maybe the pendulum had swung too far in favor of protecting copyright. Uh, they had business models that uh, depended on, you know, sort of working within the interstices of copyright, depending on exceptions and limitations to copyright, uh, and uh, they saw it in their uh, political interest to push back uh, on the uh, on initiatives like uh, like ACTA, SOPA, and PIPA, and uh, managed to do that. Uh, Quite effectively, well, uh, not social so much, media yeah. helped a lot. Yeah, yeah, not it was not so much about ACTA in the U.S., yeah, but was... uh, what happened was that there was a big social media pushback on uh, on uh, SOPA and PIPA in the U.S. It was maybe the first time we really saw a social media campaign uh, around a specific piece of U.S. legislation. Uh, or at least the first time that I experienced that, 
uh, and uh, the uh, I was working in the administration at the time that that was happening, and I know that was a uh, there was a lot of. Uh, uh, there, there was a lot of consultation inside the Obama administration to kind of figure out how to deal with this pushback, try to understand how the administration could have a balanced position on this. Uh, and Was uh, his first term or second term, Obama? Um, well, that's a good, uh, Maybe that's a good question. Yeah, I'd have to, uh, I would have to, uh, I would have to okay. go back and, okay. uh, I would have to go back and check that. Sorry, I can't. Well, I thought actually... It was going to be passed until social media acted up, and then everyone got scared. It was on a pretty good trajectory right. uh, towards passage, and then there was this uh, there was this big uh, there was this big uh, social media backlash. A uh, lot of generation of emails, Wikipedia blackout, etc. These were things that members of Congress had never experienced before, and. Uh, a lot of the, even the strongest supporters uh, in the Congress saw this reaction that they were unfamiliar with uh, and uh, decided that they'd better slow down. Is that kind of social media, which is uh, almost always anti-IP because it's generated by people who are anti-IP, the pro-IP people don't seem to have the PR, social media interest or skills or whatever to fight back on a lot of this. Would you agree with that? I think that's still developing. I mean, the uh, the we're we're all living in a new age of uh, the of social media and its influence on the legislative process. Uh, right now, there's a legislative process going on in the EU around some copyright legislation where you're seeing a similar sort of effort at work to demonize what's actually uh, a, a relatively discreet piece of legislation. Uh, that impact is not nearly as far-reaching as uh, as either its proponents or its opponents uh, sometimes make it out to be, uh, but the I think there, at least my perception is, while you're seeing a lot of very strident pushback, you're also seeing the advocates of uh, of IP. Uh, do their part to say, hey, this is actually about European jobs and European prosperity, and uh, we need a, a balanced outcome, not just a, a, a sort of attack on the IP system. All right. In terms of the U.S., you have the U.S. Trade Representative, let's, we know, was very much, and did I thought did an excellent job around the world on TPP, uh, which, of course, was dramatically in favor of us, and a lot of countries had to, uh, I don't want to say bite your tongue, but had to, they accepted grudgingly. And so it was a, a policy vic victory, I think, uh, for the U.S. And of course, other people got stuff as well. Um, is the, are we in a situation where nothing is stalemate, uh, where... Congress is stalemated because there's enough tech people on this, everything else on one side and IP on the other. Uh, forget about the WTO as a, a real serious player now. Maybe WIPO, World Intellectual Property Organization, uh, is not going to be able to do anything other than mini treaties in certain areas. Um, is it basically stalemate and social media then kicking in that... It's going to be very difficult to get major legislation or treaties that support IP in the future. Yeah, I think it, I, I think it's certainly a very complicated situation. Certainly, very difficult to do major IP only treaties for exactly the reasons you said. I don't think the uh, I don't think the environment is right at. 
uh, WIPO, and I don't think the case has been made that there's a burning need to do a major new uh, IP treaty. If the circumstances change and the burning need for one emerges, maybe things will be uh, different. But uh, but there is uh, there 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 does come a point in time where you say, okay, we've we've laid out the meets and bounds of the garden. Now we need to till the garden and uh, and uh, uh, and and do our jobs. And I think both on uh, uh, both on IP and on trade, you can make a case that we have a pretty good infrastructure of uh, WIPO agreements and WTO agreements, uh, and we would really benefit from a period of time of just making them work properly and tending the garden that's out there. Uh, the On the trade side, I think very much the the situation we were in throughout the time I was working in at USTR was a feeling that the standards of the WTO agreements in a variety of areas, including IP, were not really high standards, that the US would benefit from having higher standards. So we were pursuing, I think, more or less across both administrations, what Bob Zellick called the uh, the the path of competitive liberalization. Who's Bob Zellick? Bob Zellick was the USTR in the Bush administration, okay. the first USTR in the Bush administration, and uh, and he articulated this doctrine of competitive liberalization, where uh, we were going to try to go out and do trade agreements with those who wanted to do high standard trade agreements uh, and demonstrate the. Uh, the, the the positive contribution they made uh, and then work with other trading partners to come up to similarly high standards. Uh, and I think that uh, that worked well up to a point. Uh, I agree with your assessment of TPP that it was a, uh, that it was a good agreement on IP and in a variety of other areas. Uh, and it's uh, it would have been a good continuation of the path of competitive liberalization, but it didn't come to be, and the reasons for that have very little to do with the IP dynamics that you were pointing to mm. around WIPO. Uh, if anything, the reasons why Trump didn't like the TPP were not that it was too strong on IP, but that it was wasn't strong enough, and it wasn't strong enough on a variety of other things that he thought it should be strong on. Uh, so, uh, so I think the story about the obstacles to trade agreements is maybe very different from the story about the uh, obstacles to IP agreements. All right. So, if I want to affect change one way or the other in IP now, start with the U.S. Uh, where am I going to... I see the only... I think most policy is going to be made in the courts now. There's going to be a stalemate and legislative and historically, uh, executive has not been that interested in IP to, to push anything particularly strong. So you're left with court cases uh, basically deciding the key issues in IP. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's the that's the dynamic in a lot of places. Certainly in the U.S., I think if you if you step back and look at this in a global perspective and say where is IP policy innovation happening in the world, uh, I don't think it's happening in the U.S. for the most part right now uh, because the U.S. Congress has looked at the issues that are out there, has studied them pretty extensively, and by and large has decided that there's not a need to engage in extensive IP legislation. Maybe they think it's politically unpalatable. Maybe they think it's just not practically necessary. But for whatever reason, we don't expect a lot of uh, legislation on the, uh, on the U.S. side in the near term. Uh, so if I look around for where IP policy innovation is happening, uh, I see most of it happening in Europe right now, where you do have uh, in the uh, you, you you do have some innovation happening in terms of the shape of the making available right. A lot of it coming from the European Court of Justice. There is a significant legislative effort underway right now. We'll see how it turns out over the remainder of this year. Uh, the uh, uh, but. When you look at what's happening that's new, issues like injunctive relief and the enhancement of injunctive relief against pirate websites, uh, basically 
an issue very similar to the issue that SOPA and PIPA was trying to address first in the United States. Uh, the EU took up the cudgels on that. Uh, they now have the world's best system of injunctive relief against foreign pirate websites. And that came from case law. And that's that came heavily from case law based on Article 8.3 of the directive. And, the, uh, and that is now the model that the rest of the world is looking to. So I, when I worked at USTR, it was a period when we assumed that U.S. law was the model and we were trying to export that around the world. I think more and more... IP policy innovation is coming from Europe, uh, and others are looking to Europe uh, as a model on a variety of issues. That may be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your perspective on an individual issue. But you also have this dynamic where the European Commission is an institution that exists to propose legislation. So while we may go for a period of time in the U.S. without new IP administration, new IP legislative proposals, uh, I guarantee you that next year there will be a new European Commission and they will have legislative ideas about what they want to do with the intellectual property system. And it's not in the nature of the European Commission to let their competences lie fallow. They well, sometimes you want them to lie fallow because it's better to do nothing than do something that's going to get screw things up. I mean, it's interesting about the EU and IP is because back in the day when no one, Parliament was just, all they had to do was read something and they can have suggestions. They weren't seriously taken uh, by the Commission or by the Council. Uh, council really didn't know too much was going on. Uh, NIP because the people in the council and the people who were sent from the member states, there wasn't a lot of knowledge about IP. And so within the commission, you had a core group of people who knew a lot, and I think you got some pretty good stuff. But now, you just said there's a new commission. Well, they're going to have all sorts of ideas of what the people want and this want and everything else. And I think the more people... When you want to make a decision, you don't expand the people who are making the decision. You contract the people who are making the decision if you really want to get a decision. And we're expanding the, the amount of people who can have in, input and everything else into this. So, yes, you might get something, but I'm not uh, crazy about it. But the irony is nobody had faith in EU courts and IP, and especially court of justice. Mm -hmm. Everyone said, don't let anything get to the court of justice. But they, you know, have been doing, the courts have done actually much better, I thought, than we, we would have expected in the past. Yeah, I think their their recent case law in the making available right has been, uh, has, has been very good. I agree. Um, now, you picked one thing, and we're going to get in the second hour, or the third hour, um, <laughs> to more into Europe, but one thing... USTR, while you're there, you can be the most happy, proud about, or something else. Is there such a thing? What one thing am I proud about at USTR? I'm really proud of the team that I worked with at USTR. I felt like uh, I got to be there at a time when, uh, when the office and the function that Victoria created at USTR needed to be built up, institutionalized, staffed up. Uh, and over the course of the time that I was there leading the IP office at USTR, I got to work with an exceptional team of people uh, who I think set a very high standard for USTR as an IP leadership agency. Uh, can they still be that in the current political climate? I, I think very much so, because the uh, Trump administration has emphasized IP as one of the key areas for uh, for U.S. trade policy to do better. I mean, this is uh, on China. One of the central complaints about what's going on in China is the theft of U.S. IP. So uh, it's uh, I, I think there's all the opportunity in the world for USTR yeah, to remain I mean, central. I, I think I agree. I, the irony, of course, I am not a Trump fan. Uh, that's because uh, I have a brain <laughs> and among some other things. But the it's amazing as the new head of the PTO, the new head of antitrust, 
in the Department of Justice are both excellent and really know what they're doing. And it's, it's kind of amazing that those choices came out of the Trump administration. So I should actually qualify whenever I talk about the Trump administration that some good things seem to be happening. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think the emphasis that they put on uh, IP in, uh, in the China context and more broadly has been good and welcome. Uh, and it's something that ought to be supported and encouraged. And I, I think we need to we need to understand that there are different areas of policy, and it's happy. It's, it's perfectly possible to have different views about whether the administration policy is right in this area versus that one. Well, the thing about China, which I think is interesting, is there. First of all, they had no IP infrastructure for many years because they really weren't doing. I mean, like courts are new and everything. So then they got up to speed, and in fact. Uh, Supreme Court was coming over here, uh, actually came to Fordham a couple of times. Uh, what are you doing in copyright and everything else? And the stuff they started doing was basically U.S. And in patents, they're doing basically what the U.K. does or Europe does in patents. Uh, but that's the elite. Then you have the party, you have the army, you have prime minister. What's the head? What's his title, the head of China? President? Yep, the, the Xi Jinping. The yeah, president, and yeah. so you have people who actually aren't in control of actually, even if they think they should do it. Uh, I'll give you one example. Is, um, the person who's in charge of, uh, well, I don't, I guess, anyway, high up in the China administration in uh, competition, uh, went to someone high up in DG Comp and said, this was when after the Microsoft uh, decision went against Microsoft, et cetera. Well, what are you going to do now? To the, uh, uh, what is going to happen as a result of your Microsoft decision? This person expected the US then to go after a couple EU companies. And this person would say, what are you talking about? We're independent and everything else. And she said, well, if you did that to one of our Chinese companies, <laughs> I would be ordered to go after two people using our competition law to show you never to do that again. And this, this was the head of the thing. So that's what we're dealing with to some extent. No matter what this person wanted or not wanted, the political powers would have said, hold on. Because it's basically industrial policy with very much of either general or our stars in the industry are going to be supported against the rest of the world. Yeah. I, I mean, I think you've put your finger on one of the things that the U.S. government has really struggled with, and I think the Europeans have struggled with this as well, in dealing with China, which is that, uh, that they have a, a legislative uh, machinery that's Often very good, often very much in line with the uh, with with international standards, uh, but certainly on the issues that I was working on when uh, I worked for the government in previous administrations, what we struggled with was that what was written in the legislation and what happened in actual practice were not always the same thing, uh, and that was difficult to deal with. But I. I have to say, though, I think that this is something where the expectations of Chinese companies are changing as well, because as Chinese companies become major players in the world, they also want the stability that comes with knowing that the law means what it says. That that the law means what it says. Uh, so there is a process of maturation that's happening there. So I'm not. Uh, I'm not. I, I, I'm not entirely uh, without optimism that things will continue on a good trajectory in China. So how much optimism do you have for the legislation that's going to come out of Europe in the future, either copyright or whatever? Yeah, I think the uh, uh, I think the, the 
I think what I'm always at pains to explain to my American colleagues about Europe is that no matter whether we think it's a good idea to have IP legislation or not have IP legislation, the machinery that produces this legislation in Europe is going to keep on churning out uh, new legislation, refinements to the system. Uh, and it's a question of uh, channeling that into the directions where it can actually be helpful. And I think that's that's what was uh, what a lot of the people involved with the legislative process were trying to do with the digital single market initiatives. Say, look, we really appreciate the single market. It's the support for, uh, for uh, both international and European companies to do business in Europe. Uh, so digital single market is a great idea in principle. Uh, but as the specific ideas evolved and they in, they involved in some cases things like uh, taking away the ability to do country by country licensing in the copyright sector, uh, that was not something that we were very happy about because we need the flexibility to serve different parts of the market in different ways. I think actually the European industry embraced that point uh, to a to an even greater degree than the international companies doing business in Europe because that's how they do business, certainly in the audiovisual sector, uh, by licensing country by country. So the, I think the realization dawned in the context of the digital single market saying, saying oh, having a single market doesn't mean the same thing as mandating that you have to serve every country in that market exactly the same way. So I'm hopeful that point's been made and uh, I'm hopeful we won't go through the same exercise again of uh, of uh, of having to educate the European legislator about the need for territorial licensing. It's possible we will, though, because there will be reviews of the geo-blocking geo regulation. There will ultimately be a review of the new SATCAB regulation they're working on right now. So I think that that issue of uh, contractual freedom to license uh, within the context of a broader European single market will be a continuing item for discussion. The other big issue on the table in Europe is the current copyright in the digital single market directive. And that's the one that's attracted all the social media hype recently. Uh, and there, uh, we won't know until next month in September whether something comes out of the European Parliament and what it will be. Uh, on that particular directive. And this is the one where I commented earlier that I think both the opponents and the supporters uh, were pumping it up like it would be a bigger thing than it, than it is. Uh, I have to say we're a, we're a supporter of the, uh, of the committee report that was voted down by the European Parliament plenary on the 5th of July. Uh, the issues are not really issues that are focused on the motion picture industry or the audiovisual sector, uh, but they were, uh, they, they were and uh, are issues that are important to uh, authors and producers, particularly uh, of music and, uh, and books. Uh, and they were by and large uh, good and sensible refinements to the, uh, to the IP system that are being made out to be the outlawing of memes and things like that. And I don't think it's really helpful to the political discourse when uh, when uh, things are misrepresented in that way. And let me ask you a question about uh, culture and motion pictures and art and literature and stuff in Europe. Uh, I'm I get the sense that most of the intense interest uh, is regional or smaller that we're worried about our artists, not our authors, our motion pictures, not being able to compete in a global market, which is basically American, which of course means it's bad. And we are actually looking for um, some space to be able to do that. And we can, because all we're nearly doing is here. We don't want to go. We're not selling Polish things over here. We're not selling this. What really goes around uh, in the old days was Britpop and uh, American stuff and uh, the movies. Uh, and that there isn't a core uh, European-based view that really is concerned with larger 
exploitation of works than smaller exploitations of works like the U.S. is. Now, so they're sort of okay with um, these rules of a single market because they have their own little market and it doesn't matter because no one's going to come in from us somewhere else and um, be able to see this without paying the price. It's only going to be that small market. Uh, so I think from my perspective anyway, the dynamic, economic dynamics of that are such that they're not pushing as much because if you're an economist, I mean, from the beginning, the Europe of a single market, one price and all this other stuff is crazy. What you want is price discrimination because that helps everybody being able to get that product at a price they can afford. Whereas if you choose one price, a lot of people can't afford it or other it would be too low to make innovation. People want to innovate and do it. And it's certainly when you talk about selling overseas, an interesting thing about it, they got it right. Yeah, they've screwed up their own market with this. Uh, but you can... No foreigners can come in and mess around with this. So it's not um, international exhaustion. We can still stop, you know, I'm doing this in Africa. This That can't come back into Europe. Now we've just had a bad Supreme Court decision which allows that. But within it, but the reality is if you go into a British supermarket, you don't see a lot of Spanish stuff in there, uh, Polish Dwayne Reed, you don't see a lot of, so what it, you don't have a lot of cross-selling in this single market. So it, it's, you have this theory, but the reality is actually you still have protected markets for whatever reason, taste or something else, of which is not going to be a problem. So it's kind of a weird situation. Yeah, it, it, it's absolutely true. I think the, the, the right way to market a film uh, is different whether you're talking about uh, Barcelona, Bologna, Berlin, Bremerhav, and Bratislava, right across Europe, because those are, those are different audiences with different tastes. Linguistically, it, even something as simple as subtitling. It's the same film, uh, but if you're showing it in German, the German audience by and large wants a subtitled film. Whereas right next door in the Netherlands, the audience by and large uh, wants an original language film uh, the, or the, uh, a dubbing film. That's a, the, this is the point I mean to make, so that you'll, you'll have dubbed films in some markets and subtitled well, films in others. Yeah, so you get dubbed films in France, but in uh, in in the Netherlands, uh, you'll get subtitled films because they 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 appreciate more the having the content in the original language. But the bigger point is, you're absolutely right. It's a diverse market, and the strength of the European market is its diversity. Uh, I think sometimes in the it, it, sometimes we get caught up in the manifest destiny of the single market. Yes, it, we want the European single market to succeed. Everybody's doing business there wants the single market uh, to succeed and appreciates the value of the single market. But it shouldn't succeed at the expense of recognizing that the individual country markets are still distinct and they can be served in distinct ways. And especially with your when you're dealing with a cultural product, you've got to recognize that. So it might be for my members that licensing to a big multi-country platform, uh, the members of the MPAA, maybe the licensing to a big multi-country platform might be the right answer for some films. Uh, but for other films uh, or TV shows, it might be better to license to local broadcasters who only serve that market because that's the right way to connect with the audience they want to connect with. And we're just trying to leave that range of options open for them. And we, th we think the European consumer is going to be a lot better off uh, from doing that. And by the way, I mean, the, the other point that's embedded, I think, in what you just said, Hugh, is that uh, there's a big tendency when we're talking about cultural products uh, like film and television to oversimplify. You talk about American blockbusters, you talk about European film, uh, as if these were hard and fast categories. Uh, last year, the film that won the Golden Globe for, uh, for best foreign film was a German film uh, that went by the title In the Fade in the US, Aus dem Nix in German. Uh, that film was co-produced by Warner Brothers, which is a member of the MPAA. 
uh, also a major producer of local German language films. And right across Europe, our members are deeply involved in the ecosystem of producing local language films, just as they are marketing, uh, 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 just as they're marketing and distributing uh, big international blockbuster films. Uh, so you can't, um, you can't nicely oversimplify the market. You have to understand that there are German producers who are producing for an international market, and there are American companies that are producing local content. All right. What's going to happen? You say September we're going to learn, or is it going to be a little bit after September? What's going to happen with this legislation? I think the the legislative processes on the remaining pieces of the digital single market are going to take a while to unfold yet. Uh, so I think this is all going to spill over into next year. Um, it's difficult to forecast how the vote will turn out in September. I would say there's... Uh, a substantial possibility, though, that the the same majority of the European Parliament that rejected the report that was on the table on the 5th of July does not command a majority to support any alternative to it. So you could be in a situation where there's no majority support for any position in the European Parliament. Uh, and the net result of that might be to just uh, slow down or stalemate. But the, the other alternative process. is if the council is unanimous. They don't have to worry about parliament. So the, if, if they disagree, then they have to go to this committee and everything else. But if the council is unanimous, um, that's it. Well, under the uh, uh, under the current process now, the you have uh, shared legislative power between the between the parliament and the uh, and the council. So you have uh, no, you have shared, but except unless they've changed it. Yes, it's shared, so the parliament has a tremendous role. And if they disagree, then you have to have this conciliation committee. But if the council is unanimous in its view that disagrees with parliament, at least this was the law, I don't know, shortly before, It's if that's the law. But the chance of the council being unanimous is probably... Very small in any of this. Yeah, probably it's pr it's probably an academic point. The council won't be unanimous, but the uh, what we experienced in ACTA was the uh, it was the, that was that was one of the early IP decisions that came up. This is the anti counterfeiting right. trade agreement. Right. Remember that uh, uh, that agreement that that, uh, that I worked on during the Obama administration, and that was after the SOPA PIPA debacle in the U.S. That was the first IP file to come in front of the European. In Parliament, and they had this newly strengthened power at that time to uh, to to reject trade agreements, and they were uh, they were eager to flex their muscles. And in the wake of Sopa Pippa, uh, there was a lot of momentum to reject it, and indeed it was rejected by the uh, by the European Parliament. Uh, so. Uh, at the same time that those uh, that 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 those EU constitutional changes uh, went through, they also beef, beefed up in other respects the legislative power of the European Parliament, all with the idea of making the EU institutions more democratic. So now the European Parliament has a significantly bigger voice in the process. But I think it comes back to the point you were making, Hugh: is uh, it's open to question whether that's always going to lead to better outcomes. Yeah. Well, interesting little historical footnote. The first, the first piece of legislation coming from the council, you know, the commission goes to both of them, but the council adopted that parliament rejected what the council did was the biotech directive. And it was largely, it was in the summer, everyone had left. There was just some relatively enough for a quorum and they voted to reject it. But then it was, they rephrased a couple of words and sent it back when all the people in power there and actually then it got through. Um, that has actually no relevance to what we're discussing today. I just thought it was interesting. Uh, so uh, that's all I have, Stan. This was great. Is there anything that you would like to say? Hugh, I want to say that the Fordham IP Conference is the best IP conference in the world. Some people come to New York for Broadway shows. Some people come to New York for Radio City Music Hall. I come to New York for the Fordham IP Conference, the world's best IP conference. You're the man, Stan. All right. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Non-Obvious with Hugh Hansen. This episode was recorded on August 17th, 2018.